Hey everybody, this is Daniel Patrick, and this is episode number 190. Mandolin's a Beer podcast brought to you in part by my favorite website, The Mandolin Cafe. How's everybody doing? It's also brought to you by Acoustic Disc, David Grisman's website with all his incredible music and all the music he's kind of accumulated over the years with some incredible players. It's also home of the Acoustic Encounters podcast, which is Danny Barnes and David Grisman. We actually talk about Danny Barnes for a minute here in this episode with Jake Eddy. Also, huge welcome to Stringjoy as a sponsor of the uh, of the uh, podcast. I'm so excited to have them. I was excited. I saw on the Mandolin Cafe, my favorite website, the other morning that Stringjoy was making mandolin strings. And I had just actually gotten a text from a friend of mine, a guitar player who I really, really respect. And he had asked me, hey, have you ever um, checked out these Stringjoy strings? And I had not because they hadn't made mandolin strings yet. He's like, he loves them. And then... Well, look at that. They come out with mandolin strings, and this is exciting. I love trying out new strings and picks, so I'm super excited to check out these string joys. They have phosphor. They have coated phosphor, which should be very interesting because I know a lot of people have been really bummed by a couple companies who no longer make their favorite coated strings, and they have 80-20 as well. They have different gauges, and great news, you can get 10% off your order from Stringjoy by using the promo code MANDOLINBEER, all one word, at checkout. That's right. Just go to Stringjoy.com, buy all the strings, get all three sets, try them out, see which one your mandolin loves. And then just at the checkout, enter the promo code MANDOLINBEER, all one word at checkout. That's it. Get 10% off. Welcome, Stringjoy. Thanks for joining on. I was really excited to do this week's episode. I am a Jake Eddy fan, not only just as a player, but as a as a person. He is a really, really nice guy. I got to spend some time talking to him and his brother at IBMA uh, last year. And just, just two great, fun people. And his playing is inspirational. If you're not familiar with Jake, he is just one of the best guitar players out there right now. And his Instagram is just filled with some incredible playing and his right-hand technique, just all of his technique is great, but I felt that we could learn some stuff from him, especially some some of the things that he had been posting about lately, about learning licks and not worrying about scales and learning the chords to songs. It's a really, really good one. We also touch on a, uh, a subject, and um, it's kind of a, I would say, a social media no-no. I mean, if you know a person, maybe it might be okay to ask. However, when somebody gets the instrument of their dreams, and it's a vintage instrument, Obviously, the cost is 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 expensive. Um, but if you don't know a person, I don't think the first thing you should be asking somebody is how much they paid for it. You know, it's 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 a personal thing. And it's I mean, I don't know. It's like asking somebody that you don't know what they make. It's so we talk a little bit. We talk a little bit about that. And then Jake kind of touches on it a little bit, too. But, um, yeah, I, it was it, it was interesting because I remember when he got that guitar and I just remember looking at the comments. And it was just so weird to see so many people like, how much did you pay for that? How much did you pay for that? You know, it's uh, just just listen to him play it. That's what's important. Anyway, let's get into the advertisers real quick here. Peghead Nation. With Peghead Nation's streaming video courses in mandolin, guitar, banjo, fiddle, dobro, ukulele, and bass, you'll learn bluegrass, old-time, and other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in Roots Music. PegheadNation.com features a great lineup of mandolin instructors with courses taught by Sharon Gilchrist, Joe K. Walsh, he's got a bunch of them, Mike Compton, John Reichman, Aaron Weinstein, Marla Fibish, Chad Manning. All the courses include high-quality multi-angle video lessons, downloadable notation and tab, play-along tracks, and plenty of tunes and songs to play. Best part is you can join any of Peghead Nation's video courses now and get your first month for free. Just go to PegheadNation.com right now and use that promo code MANDOLINBEER, all one word, at checkout. Northfield Mandolins, let's build more than a mandolin together. Check out their website at northfieldmandolins.com. Download their app at mandosummit.app for lots of special performance recordings, demonstrations, and special workshops. Also, follow them on social media, man. They got, I just love the the um, joy that Adrian gets from trying to build the perfect instrument. And there's some videos of him just, you know, tweaking and tweaking. And, and that's why they remain at the top of the game. So make sure you follow Northfield on Instagram. Ear Trumpet Labs, hand-built microphones in Portland, Oregon. Their mics are beautifully designed. They have great feedback rejection for live use and the most natural tone you'll find for acoustic instruments. Check them out at eartrumpetlabs.com today. 
Pava Mandolins, dedicated to building for the impassioned player, Pava Mandolins in Austin, Texas. Thank you so much, Pava and Ellis, for being a sponsor. Tone slabs. Tone slab. Dude, I love my tone slab picks. They, uh, the, the Darth tone, I, uh, I love them. And working something special up with my friends over there at Tone Slabs. Our customer service is great, too. And they've got all the thicknesses and, and shapes that you could possibly want. I highly recommend go to toneslabs.com. Get yourself a slab of tone. I've got a copy coming of the new Lloyd Lore book that Roger Simonoff has just put out. Um, Roger's research on Lloyd Lore, it's over 50 years of information. It covers his entire life from his birth in 1886 to his death in 1943. It's got it all from his beginnings to his work overseas, his work on the uh, Gibson Master Model, the L5, the F5, the H5, the K5, um, everything all through his career. Musical scores, his involvement with the Versi Tone producer, his patents. All of this, Roger has researched it. He's done interviews with everyone from Gibson historians to Lloyd's wife and widow, Bertha. So I'm excited to read that. You can get that, too, if you go to SimonoffBooks.com now. And guess what? Use the promo code MANDOBEER, all caps, two separate words at checkout. You also get 10% off. Thank you, Roger. I can't wait to read this book. It's going to be really good stuff. And Elderly Instruments. Elderly Instruments is your trusted source for new, used, and vintage fretted and stringed instruments. For the experienced beginner player, their vast selection of mandolins, guitars, banjos, ukuleles, did I mention mandolins? Includes all of the accessories and books to go with them. All instruments are inspected and set up for easy playability, and their down-to-earth and knowledgeable staff are there to help. Now in their 51st year, they're family-owned and operated. They ship worldwide, and you can visit them anytime at Elderly.com. All right, let's get into this episode with Jake Eddy. Uh, let's play it in with he put an album out with Dominic Leslie playing mandolin on it. And Jake's got a ton of great stuff. There's links below uh, all the samples that you'll hear on this. Uh, there are links to where to go to buy these albums and these tracks and all that great stuff. So be sure to click them, support your favorite artists, and have yourselves a fantastic weekend. Cheers, everybody. My pleasure to welcome to the podcast, Jake Eddie. Jake, how's it going? Hey, man, I'm good. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here, dude. Thank you so much for doing it. We uh we met at IBMA and um been kind of talking about doing this for a while now. So I'm glad we finally connected and and made it happen. Yeah, man, it takes time. Busy, busy guys, both of us. Yeah, yeah. Great. You um, when did you record? You have that album live at the Spanish Ballroom that was from 2023. I was listening to that this weekend, which is just so great, man. Yeah, I, we just, or I say we, I guess I just cut it in, uh, I think the show was either in January or February in, uh, in Tacoma, Washington. Wow, no kidding. And so, yeah, I mean, my, my thing was like, you know, it's, it's a pretty strong statement to put out a solo flat picking record, I think, on its own. And then the other thing was, you know, that was like a sold out show, like thousands of miles from my home, which I think is also a pretty strong showing. So I think the whole thing was like, you know, I'm glad we captured it, and I'm, I'm glad I could put it out, and it, it turned out, and you know, so. You know, what really impressed me about the album too is, it, you know, with just looking at the track listing, and I'm like, oh, wow, this is going to be great. Even though you have the ability to just burn through tunes and and sound amazing, those tunes all are just beautifully played. And while there's some really fast stuff on there, you, you it's just the the way you play them and approach them. 
each is really impressive because again you could have been through each of those songs in 30 seconds and it would have been you know sure <laughs> over but but i think it's really great that a player that is as good as you and as notoriously fast and well clean picked that you can do that you actually you know you you respect each of the tunes for what they are as well which i was really impressed by that well thank you man and also you know it's also tries to you know i think i tried to speak a little bit to the like there's there's kind of two sides to that solo playing for me the first being the playing it safe like here's me playing perfectly right i'll do it at a moderate tempo i don't want to miss anything it's a nice arrangement and from top to bottom it's like flawless clean and then the other side is the more like risk taking like let's abandon some of the 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 cleanliness of it for you know maybe something interesting musically so there I, you know i try to incorporate both of those things on there where I'm playing it really straight and really clean and then also taking risk for the sake of, you know, some, some energy and, and stuff. So uh, I think it's important to have both. Yeah. Well, I, I, I enjoyed it, man. It's great. Who, who did the artwork for that? Is that Danny Barnes? Danny Barnes. Yeah. yeah Danny Barnes. That was great. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Danny's the shit, man. He's, he's the coolest. He is funny. Like I, um, I didn't know him real well before that. Like we had spoke, you know, here and there about, this and that like and i collect some art too so i bought some like you know some prints and some things off him and so i asked him to do the the cover and after that like you know we've kind of became friends like we talk pretty often on the phone and like we've stayed in touch and and uh, um you know so yeah he's a, I, I love danny man he's a really really good dude and has been super encouraging to me yeah i've been really listening to his album stove up a lot recently oh yeah it's awesome so good Before we get way too far on the podcast, I want to make sure we talk about a couple things right off the top here. And the first thing is I've been seeing some of the videos of your homestay where you have people actually come to your house and stay for multiple days and work on on music with you. So uh, let's talk a little bit about that real quick. Yeah, I mean, so I always do the Zoom lessons, you know, Skype lesson thing, and, and I have the Patreon, and that's all cool. And, and you know, but, but first, you know, really discerning players, especially players who you know, it's funny, my homestay students usually fall into two camps. Like, first camp would be hobbyist musician who has the cash and the time to come out and spend time with me and, and really level up. And then the other half are kind of usually working musicians or like young musicians who are, want to play professionally and they like, you know, they, they scrape together and, and they make it work, whatever, and we work out like, I try to get them a discount or they'll, we'll try to find them a sponsor or like, you know, so there's people that that kind of just come out because they have the time and the money and the whatever. And then there's some, you know, younger players who really use it as a way to level up quick and, and try to like, um, you know, they use it as kind of a play towards working professionally. So it's cool. Like I get a really wide array of, you know, I get lawyers and dentists and bus boys and Uber drivers and like whatever, you know, it's not, uh, I get all sorts of folks. It's really cool. And I love too. It's like, it's, it's not just a, music and then that's it <laughs> there's campfires and food and rifle shooting yeah i mean it's the whole thing i mean i, I cook for them we you know some, we went fishing and we go you know do all this stuff so it's like it's not just you know so you figure if you're here for, you know for four days like how much can you really play a day you know and i've had some students who only want to play two three hours a day and that's cool and i've had some students who we've played for like 14 15 hours like guitar in hand the whole time, order in a pizza for dinner and, and keep working, you know? So it's, it's kind of dependent on the student and, and, you know, people have different bandwidths for how much they can really play and, and like soak in before they, they turn to mush. <laughs> and then the other thing that you've um, had some videos of, and I didn't know this was going to be a project, but you've been playing some with Victor Furtado and you guys have just recorded. Yeah. So Victor is like, you know, again, we've kind of been peripherally aware of each other and stuff for a long time, but, um, you know, he was kind of in a, a different band and things and he was busy and, and, you know, and I was busy doing sideman stuff and, but it's finally just got to the point where we've both had the time and, and kind of, um, you know, the ability to get together and, and stuff. So we've got together and we played a show, uh, I don't know, a few weeks ago and then, 
the rest of that week we spent cutting a record. Victor and uh, me and Carter, my brother. By the way, your brother Carter, I um I just started following him on Instagram the other day, and I mean I realized what a great bass player he was playing in a bluegrass setting, but man, he's a killer jazz bass player. Yeah, he's a monster, and and he does a lot of like. You know, bass players work in kind of a different capacity, whereas, like, I mean, I do the hired gun thing some, and I do the session work or whatever, but bass players can, like, there might be a week where Carter has eight gigs with eight bands. You know, like, it's it's very, like, uh, you know, you know, the bass players who really work a lot can play a lot of different styles and stuff. So he'll have, like, a, you know, some fine dining restaurant jazz gig on Monday and a bluegrass festival Tuesday and teach workshop on Wednesday and a session Thursday. And, you know, it's like very, it's all over the place, which is kind of different than, um, than the way, you know, guitar players work. I think. Where do you guys live? Do you guys live in the same city? Yeah. I, matter of fact, we live on the same street. Oh, um, do you really? Yeah. I can see his house from where I'm sitting right now. Oh, um, no kidding. Yeah. He, um, yeah, we live in West Virginia. I mean, we stayed, you know, we kind of stayed in our hometown, which, um, you know, I don't know. I mean, I've talked about that quite a bit on, on different stuff, so I'll, I'll bore you the whole story. But just, you know, I always thought that I would move to Nashville and play on the Opry or I would move to L.A. and do sessions or whatever. And I thought you had to move there to do that. And then I found myself having done all my goals from home you know like i've done the opry four or five times and i go to la and new york for sessions and i tour what will be internationally in the fall and so you know it's kind of like i used to think you had to live somewhere else like well i guess my thing about going to nashville is i love working down there and i love going down to do the you know the thing the bigger things i like to do the opry and the station in and play sessions and whatever but you know i've worked really hard to to stop being a local musician, you know, and stop having to work clubs every night and all that. And I think sometimes if you live in Nashville, you have to do that game. And I don't, I don't know if I'm into that. Yeah. And is West Virginia, like when you play, let's say when you were playing like local clubs, cause I, I live in Charleston, South Carolina. And again, what's great about Charleston, South Carolina is I could play. And I did play at one point, I was doing 300 gigs a year. And, um, but I yeah. also knew what I was making when I went into the gig before tips were considered in where when you move to Nashville, it's, it's the complete opposite. You roll in and you're pretty much playing for tips. And well, that's specifically the Broadway thing. Yeah. It was like that. Yeah. I've never done it. And I don't think I ever will. Yeah. You don't need to. Like, I, you know, I think I got lucky to skip some of that stuff, you know, like I kind of got, got to cut the line a little bit in some ways. Yeah, but you've also put in the work in a different aspect. I mean, your social media oh, sure. is just impressive. I mean, it's anytime I meet anybody who hasn't, you know, maybe heard of you or they might not be necessarily like a bluegrass player, but they might be a really good player at something. I'm always like, oh, wait, do you follow this guy? Yeah, I mean, I send it to everybody who plays. It's funny, like, um, you know, the social media thing is not anything that I ever have or ever will work very hard at. And, and I think people will hear me say that and go like, Oh, that's, that's, you know, he's bullshit or whatever. But I just started posting on Instagram like a few years ago, just to log my practice, just to be like, Hey mom and grandma and whoever here, here's what I'm playing today. Right. It wasn't anything like I was already working, not at the level I am now, but I was already doing sessions and I was already playing gigs and whatever. And, um, you know, I was already making my living playing music, but the social media like really stepped it up to a whole different thing. And, and it, I mean, just being honest, it completely changed our life, like in every every way, financially and, and otherwise. I mean, it's been really, really good. And and I think it's went well because I don't put too much effort in it. Like you see some people's Instagram videos, they look like movies. And that's like, that's, that's its own thing, but that's not my deal. You know, I just, um, mine's a little more... Um, I don't know. It's like a little bit more impromptu, a little bit more homegrown kind of feeling. Like this morning I posted one playing in my garden and the entirety of the process was walk out to my garden and set my phone up on the rainwater collector thing. And you know, that's it. <laughs> that's great. Like there's nothing else. Well, I think maybe that's a, a lot of what people respond to as well as it doesn't seem like, you know, like some crazy production where it's like, uh, is this even real? Like how many, you know, I mean, yours come off as raw and just as a person who lives 
music. Right, and it's funny because I don't really even identify with the like internet guitar player thing, you know. Um, like, you know, if you ever see me on a video being like, I'm Jake Getty and this is my top 20 licks, to, you know, like just put me out of my misery. Like, <laughs> that's not my deal. Um, and, you know, and I've worked hard to, to like distance myself from that whole crowd and that whole attitude about it. How did you start playing uh, music? Man, I was one of these like little uh, bluegrass festival kids, you know, like my parents my, or my mom and my grandpa were pickers and stuff. And just, um, I mean, that's, that's pretty much it. I mean, I was just around festivals and around, uh, you know, jams always at the house and on holidays and every weekend, you know, you go to these, like, at least in West Virginia, you can go to like churches and community centers and old schoolhouses and stuff like that. And they have these jams. You know? So I was kind of on that scene and it just seemed like the cool thing to do. You know, all my favorite people were like pickers. It sounds like your grandpa was one of your heroes. Totally. And my best friend and everything. Actually, matter of fact, today would have been his birthday. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, we played, so like, I've, again, I've told this story like a million times, but different audience. Um, we, when I was a kid, when I was 14, I got hired to play with Melvin Goins playing banjo. And, uh, you know, the, the short version of the story is my parents said, yeah, you can take the gig if you have an adult with you at all times, right? Because they're kind of, they're hip to what can go on. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I, I asked my grandpa if he would be my chaperone on tour. And so he did. And he actually got uh, offered to join the band playing bass. So we toured together in that band for two years. It was, I mean, it was special. I mean, it really was. It was a good, good time. <laughs> and like when you go on tour, when at, at that age, like was it regional tours? I mean, how far like away from home right. did I mean, you get? So, so Melvin was kind of like, you know, the like uh, one of the last like living pioneer kind of guy. You know, he's in the Lonesome Pine Fiddlers and all that. So, I mean, when I was in the band, when I was like 14, he was like 80 something for sure. So yeah, most of the touring was like from... Yeah, I mean, Georgia, Tennessee, North Carolina, Kentucky, Ohio, West Virginia, Indiana, you know, that kind of, that deal, the kind of, you know, the, the old school bluegrass circuit, like Bean Blossom and Hyden, Kentucky and the Tennessee Fall Homecoming and the Mountaineer Opry and the whatever, like all that stuff is where we were kind of playing. And then how did you get from, you know, going to festivals and picking with your gran grandma and your, or your, or your mom and your grandpa and to, to at 14 being asked to join, you know, a touring band. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty big leap at a young age. Yeah, man. I mean, well, shit, I was kind of like, um, I, I don't know. I, I hate, I hate the term and I don't agree with it, but I was like, you know, people called me like a prodigy or whatever, you know, I was like a little, like just some little nerd, <laughs> you know, little <laughs> banjo playing kid. So I had a little recognition that, you know, in that way. So, you know, kind of online and stuff. I remember when I was a kid, there was like a, an article somewhere, maybe in print or online, that, that called me a child prodigy. And I think my parents maybe saw that. I'm like, what the heck? You know, like one of those things. Where, <laughs> sure. Uh, but, yeah, so it was kind of that deal. And, and the way it happened was I used to go to this festival called the Mac in Columbus, Ohio. It used to be Frontier Ranch, and it doesn't exist anymore. But, you know, it was like uh, they all the, the major bands were there. And, and my grandparents were kind of friends with uh, James King. And so – there was this guy, Chris Hill, who played banjo in James King's band. I don't know if you know Chris at all. And he kind of took a liking to me when I was young. And we kind of, you know, would hang out. Like at festivals, he would always, like, invite me to these jams, like, in the artist area. So I would get to go and pick with, like, him and, you know, like, Michael Cleveland. And, like, just who, you know, just whoever was picking there at the time. <laughs> and so he would remember that he, like, I was a good banjo player or whatever. So he, Melvin had called him and asked for, if he knew anyone, any banjo players looking for a job. And he threw my name in the ring, which is so bluegrass because, like, no, no, fourteen-year-old is really looking for a job. But that, you know, that's kind <laughs> of the way it goes. And I remember, it like, plain as day, I was at a at a roller skating rink for a birthday party. So, like, actually, like, doing kid stuff. And I got a call on my little flip phone or whatever that said, uh, "It was Chris Hill." And he said, "Son, if Melvin Goins calls you, say yes." And I'm like, "Man, I, I'm a kid, but I'll try." You know, I'm a, <laughs> right. And so I did, and that's kind of how it. I went to go and he called me and he said, uh, boy, how'd you like to come, come play the banjo with me? And I was like, well, 
I'd like to, but, uh, you know, I don't know. I have to go to school and have to, but whatever, it all worked out. My folks kind of let it, let it happen. And it was great. It was, you know, still some of the best times I can remember growing up. It was really great. Oh man, I bet. I mean, what's it like for a 14 year old on the road, especially when you say like, you know, you know, Melvin's probably 80 at that point. I mean, what kind of stuff were you, I mean, did you just woodshed? Did you get to, you know, get out and see things? And I mean, you're out there with your grandpa too, who I'm sure is like, well, let's do something, but you know. Yeah. I mean, it was, man, the, the thing that I remember the most is that I grew up like instantly, you know, I remember being a kid when I left and an adult when I came back. Um, because of not only the thing of working and making money and whatever, but also it was like lawless. You know, my grandpa was like a cool guy. He wasn't like being my dad on the road. He was letting me have fun and letting me really experience it, you know? And so it was cool. I mean, I saw some very wild things. I was, <laughs> I but yeah, it was just a lot of practicing. Not even practicing, like just, you know, all the Melvin stuff was stuff that like I grew up hearing. So you show up, you're just expected to kind of know it. It's not really, a, you know, I don't ever remember having a single practice or anything. Just show up and, and go. And, and that might not be completely accurate, but I don't remember doing that at all. So then when did you make the switch from banjo over to guitar? Well, yeah, so I played both all the while. Um, but my grandpa was also a guitar player and a banjo player. So whatever he was preferring to play at the time, I usually played the other, like at home and stuff. Um, so a lot of times growing up, he liked playing guitar, so I would play banjo and just practice my guitar on my own time, you know. But yeah, I mean, I still play both, especially on sessions and stuff. I mean, I play a lot of banjo on recordings and, and things like that. Yeah, you're also a killy, killer telly player. Man, I've been doing a lot of that lately too. It's it's funny. It's not something that I put a ton of time in, but it's like if you're if you're a picker, you know, those gigs pop up, and they need somebody who can cut solos and stuff like that. To hear you going on the road at the age of the ripe old age of fourteen, I mean, obviously you put in plenty of time to the instrument. Even you know, no matter how gifted people were, like, oh, you're a prodigy, but obviously you worked to get there. When you were woodshedding, what were you doing to help? Well, yeah, and that's the thing, you know, it's really, it's probably some sort of like something in my brain that's broke because I'm still, I still <laughs> practice the way I practiced when I was like eight. You know, I still wake up and get the guitar out and, and lock down somewhere and, and play for a long time. You know, that's still kind of my thing. And then, uh, you know, there's days like, I mean, I'm an adult, so there's other things I have to tend to. I mean, obviously I'm playing full time, but like, you know, I'm. Like I have a wife and we like to, we've got to sometimes go grocery shopping or sometimes we got to go to a dinner or a whatever. But like, you know, the majority of my time is spent playing, I feel like. And, it, and it's been that way for, you know, 15 years or something. When you grab that guitar, do you have like a, do you have a set thing you do in the morning? Do you like have a set Never. practice routine or you just start? Nope. Yeah. Wow. Just start playing. And that's, and you'll see some of my posts on there where it says, like, here's my first notes of the day. And, like, that's that's honest. That's not just a caption. You know, I just hit the button and see what's what's there, what's working and what's not. And, you know, at a certain point, I think, when you're playing professionally and when you, like, play a lot like that, it's more – I don't want to say I'm not learning new stuff because I am. But it's also – there's some maintenance involved where it's like, hey, I like the way I sound right now. How can I lean into that? And, and make sure everything stays tight and everything's working, <laughs> you know, as opposed to just, you know, like when you're in the kind of beginning stages of playing, I always tell people, like, learn a bunch of tunes and learn a bunch of solos and whatever. But, you know, once you develop your vocabulary, you know, it becomes more about stretching the stuff you already have and kind of like, you know, leaning into your, your strong stuff, at least for me. You had a really good post on your Instagram recently about vocabulary which i thought was it was incredible and i'd love you to maybe talk a little bit about it and it was you know when soloing it was like you're not relying on scales though you might have put a bunch of time into scales that's not that's not what you're thinking about you're relying more on vocabulary which i think is really cool so i thought maybe we could kind of talk about that yeah the thing with the vocabulary like i always tell people i don't know any scales right and that's true like in some way like if you said to me play a g major scale like i can do that Beyond that, I don't really have it. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. and it's not um, – and people say, well, you play all this complicated stuff and, and it's built from 
from scales. And it's like, I mean, yes, but everything is built from scales if you think about it that way. Like I, I've always kind of considered scales or, you know, they're kind of like, it's kind of like the alphabet, you know, like you can know the alphabet, but if you can't arrange it into some kind of word or, or a sentence or a joke or whatever, then it's, it's pretty well useless. And, and so I don't know. I mean, I just, I always advocate for like learning tunes, learn stuff from players you like, and, and you'll, you'll be better off. Um, cause I don't, you know, I just don't know. I'm not, I'm not from that world. Like that's not how I was raised up plant. So I'm not, you know, I'm sure there's successful players out there that know a lot of scales, especially in like the jazz world, metal world, whatever. But, um, you know, I don't know. You're never going to use scales to come up with something more bluegrassy than a Tony Rice lick or a Clarence White solo or whatever. You know, I mean, you're not going to out, outdo that stuff. So you recorded that album or the EP with the Nor'easter album with Andy Statman. Yeah. Great album. Thank you. And I love Andy Statman. How did, how did, first off, how did that project come about? Yeah, the thing with Andy was cool. Like, we, uh, I wrote some tunes and I, I sent him an email. I just said, hey, like, it's kind of stupid. I was like, hey, man, I don't know if you know me, but I love your plan and I would really love to have you on this session. And so I, I hired him basically to play on that session. But when, but like, it was, it was really different once we actually got together. We went to his place and played some tunes and it became more of a collaborative thing where we were like, kind of wrote some tunes together and, and all this. So it was very, um, it was super organic. And then we just became friends after that. I mean, talking on the phone and playing some shows together. And then we got another record in the works right now for his label. It's going to have some really cool special guests and things. And, and, but yeah, I mean, it's funny. Like we just kind of met on that session and became friends. And like, I was talking to Carter about this the other day. I don't know what it is. Like, it seems like so many players that I admire have, have ended up, like being my buddies and you know i don't know if that if i'm just a, a great bullshitter or or they they <laughs> like me or what it is but it's it's been so cool to like you know to make friendships with with some of my heroes you know and andy is definitely in that conversation like you know like right where i'm sitting right now i'm, I'm looking at i i bought my wife some flowers and they're in a vase that andy statman's wife made us you know so it's very like it's cool they're like our they're our, you know like family it's really cool I, I watched um, a live video of you and Statman playing together, and now some of these licks that you have, they're definitely outside the bluegrass realm in a sense of, like, they are out there. You know, now how does, like, something like that come into your vocabulary, just knowing your background is playing and not, you know, not being a scale guy, but, you know, Statman, so out there. Well, I've transcribed a lot of, of really wicked stuff, you know, like a lot of jazz and a lot of, like... I mean, Andy's put me on to a bunch of this, like, Greek folk music and, and like, um, I mean, gosh, there's so many things. Like, some of the things I've been listening to lately that are more outside of the box are, like, I really love John Coltrane always and all that post-bop stuff with, like, McCoy Tyner and I love Eric Dolphy and I, like, listen to Mingus a lot with Carter and, and like, Andy's put me on to some of, the, like, this guy Boris Karloff and uh, Pericles Halkius. These are, like, some Greek clarinetists, and I've been listening to uh, all sorts of Latin music and, and like, uh, I mean, you know, all sorts of stuff. I like stuff that has a similar energy to bluegrass, right? I like the stuff that has a lot of feeling and a lot of really aggressive, like, timekeeping and stuff like that. So, um so yeah, I mean, just it's from transcribing stuff that I like to listen to, and also, um, I went to jazz school for like a year, and my attendance was very poor, and I quit and stuff. But I, it was, you know, there's I'm sure there's some that I've soaked up there. I never learned a lot of like, uh, you know, the, the most of the theory that I learned there was like it's weird because I was already playing it at some level, but the um, the like the the stuff I learned there was more like putting a name to concepts I already understood in my own way but being able to discuss them and like know why they work and especially the like the harmonic stuff i learned at school like um 
knowing how to, um, you know, like how like reharmonizing tunes and adding different passing chords and implying different chords over changes and stuff like that. I learned from at school, you know, just knowing like the more on the harmony side of things than than the lead playing. When you're sitting down transcribing these sort of things, do you kind of have like a uh, a process you use, a, an app you use, or anything like that? I don't really. I mean, sometimes on YouTube I'll slow it down if it's something particularly tough, but I don't, you know, I don't really need to do that a whole lot. It's just, uh, and also when I say transcribe, a lot of people assume I'm writing, and I don't know how to read or write um, or tab. I don't know how to read tab or write tab. So it's like, you know, when I say transcribe, really, I guess what I mean is just learning it by ear, uh, like from the record, you know, without any kind of external uh, help, you know, without any kind of written or whatever. So, yeah, but no, I mean, not a, not a ton of process. You know, I just take it like kind of a, a phrase at a time and, and just chip away at it. And the chords, I always learn the chords first, you know, like, especially when I'm learning tunes, I, I kind of have talked about this a bit online, but like, the steps for learning a tune, you know, should be like, listen to the tune, obviously, and then internalizing the melody, you know, get to where you can hum it, sing it, and then learn the chords and then start chipping at the melody last. And I think that's, that's helpful. Yeah, that's great advice. I actually use that advice. I was working on Desverada. Desverada? I can't, I'm probably saying it completely wrong. The Brazilian <laughs> tune. But sure. I was having a hard time remembering the parts, and I was like, I... I need to go back and just learn the chords. And it's easier when you know, like, oh, I'm playing that over a D minor. It's way easier to remember, oh, these notes are. Well, yeah, it takes, it takes the guesswork. And that's the thing, right? Like, I don't know a lot of scales, but I can tell you every note and every chord ever, right? That's kind of the, where I do succeed in, in that side of things. I know how to build chords and, and substitute chords and things like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you know, right, like if you're having a hard time finding a melody note and the key's D minor, I would, don't go for C sharp first. <laughs> That's great advice. Yeah. When you go through and uh, you did that tune, was it 100, 100 fiddle tunes? Yeah, it ended up being like 97. I cut a few, but yeah. Yeah, so I'd love to talk about where you find some of these some of these tunes and like when you're learning one do you do you listen to a bunch of different versions or do you just find you know where do you find all these tunes you know especially like was it old piss <laughs> was... right I, yeah old piss i heard once in an old time jam or something a long time ago but i never retained it or remembered it I contemplate it somewhere, and then I kind of like fused some of every version that I heard. I mean, my favorite way to learn tunes, well, like, man, I guess if you're learning common tunes, just learn them from recordings. But if you want rare tunes, you got to go hang out at festivals, and you got to go hang out in jams, and you got to hang with old dudes, and you got to, like, you know, you got to dig for them. It's not easy. Like, um, you know, I, we just, Victor and I and Carter just cut this tune on a record called Liquor Cellar that. Um, was that I'd never heard before that was taught to Victor by Earl White. I don't know if you know Earl White. He's like kind of, you know, legendary old time fiddler. And, and uh, you know, and other than hearing Victor play it via Earl White, I never heard it in my life. And I tried to look it up and the only thing I could find was James Bryan plays kind of a version of it, but it's not exactly the same. So, you know, there are these tunes that basically only exist – like, you know, I might be – Victor and I and Earl might be the only few people playing that publicly right now. Or, you know, I don't know. Like, these tunes are rare and it's cool. Like, I love Whiskey Before Breakfast and Soldier's Joy as much as the next guy. But it's so cool to hear a tune that's old and almost forgotten and, you know, and get a chance to bring it back into the sphere a little bit. It's really cool. So how do you retain – that's another question that comes up a lot I see on like the Mandolin Cafe is like retaining tunes, you know. So there's 97 tunes you learned to, uh, you know, to record. Right. You know, how do you work on song retention? Well, like, I, I mean it's funny. I trimmed down the list, right? I mean it's like <laughs> right. that's really a, kind of a small sampling. But like the 
Um, you know, my thing is I remember a lot of melodies and I don't worry about retaining names at all. That helps me compartmentalize some of it, right? Where, like I'll be in a jam. This happens to me all the time. And someone says, hey, let's play, um, you know, whatever. Let's play uh, like a, you know, Whiskey Before Breakfast, which obviously I know that one. But if it's something that, you know, I'll go, okay, cool. Which one is that, right? right yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> I, the names don't seem to stick around real well for me always. But, the, yeah, the melodies are all there. And, and I think the, the way I can – keep them in there is like the tags usually aren't a huge part of the melody right so if that's not exact that's cool uh and then the, the contour you know like i kind of know the the opening phrase sounds kind of like this and in the middle is a little higher maybe and you know i mean it's for some of the tunes it's kind of rough sketches but once i hear them or once i get playing them or i, I take five seconds before we kick the tune off and like just try to dig in there and remember some of it you know it's um, I don't know. I mean, I don't think a lot about retaining tunes. I've been lucky that they kind of stick around for me pretty well. Um, but, um, you know, gosh, I don't know. I guess I don't have a good answer. I just, I just hope they stick around really. <laughs> right. I mean, I guess the first key is learning them and it sounds like your process to learning them is pretty involved again, you know, listen to it, be able to hum it, learn the chords, then, you know, then work on the melody. Everybody knows hundreds of songs. Like, you know, if you go to a, you know, if you put on your like little radio station that that plays stuff from like when you were a kid, whatever. Like I don't I don't know when you grew up. I'm assuming it's like '80s. '80s is like the music that you know. Like you, by hearing the first note of like 500 songs from the '80s, I'm guessing you would know them. Absolutely. And it's like that. But I didn't grow up with that stuff. I grew up with with fiddle tunes. So it's been in my head for for a long time. That's so funny, man. It's um. That, that come that happens all the time with like tunes you know somebody will come up when i'm playing and last for like an old bluegrass tune that maybe i'm not familiar with i'm like i, I definitely know it but it's going to take me a minute or i'll need to pull up the words real quick to remember the words but you know if somebody sure. comes up and says like hey could you play this some weird 80s tune i'll be like yeah i got it right here like at the top like the tip of my tongue and might have never right. even played it before but i can look at a chord chart and be like yep i can play that it's so right. bizarre but that's like you said that's what i grew up with i didn't get into bluegrass until you know, the early 2000s and, and, you know, so I don't have that burned into my brain stuff. Not in your, right, you weren't raised up on it, so it's different, whereas like, yeah, like my dad probably knows more songs than anyone, but he's not a picker, it's like other stuff, right, it's like whatever, he's just like a music lover, but there's people like that, you know, it's, it's the same for if you're a picker or whatever, you just, you retain the stuff that you grew up digging you know, and it, it, it doesn't seem like it would be different now if I were to get into like if, if I started playing, um, you know, rock music tomorrow. To, for me to retain 500 rock tunes would be very hard because it would be a new thing. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, the fiddle tunes have always been around for me, so it hasn't been such a such a hurdle. But, when you know, when you start something later in life or it's a new hobby, like it is different. To, to memorize 500 new tunes when you're 40. Well, like, like my wife, take my wife, for example, like she is, she plays guitar and sings some, and, uh, you know, she's just not a bluegrass picker, but she's like had me teach her a couple fiddle tunes here and there. And, you know, I hear her around the house whistling them, humming them, but she's like, I don't know what these are. And I can't remember the names and all that stuff. So, you know, it's like, uh, if you're not grown up with it, it's definitely not the same. When you get like a sideman gig, is it is it ever anything where it's something you're not really familiar with, where you have to do a little uh, homework on? Uh, you know, I don't do the sideman gigs as much anymore because they're they're not that fun. <laughs> 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 yeah. But uh, but yeah, sometimes, man. I mean, I, you know, I, I love to help out when I can, and especially if it's if it's artists that I like their music, it's easy. But if just, just to do the thing of like. Hey, we're a band you never heard of, and we're playing at the Lucky Strike pool room for four hours on it. You know, like I'm not doing those deals like that anymore. So I don't know. Um, yeah, I mean, I've had to learn a bunch of tunes really quick and stuff, and that's cool. But I just, you know, I had a student ask me about that the other day, and my advice to him was just <laughs> if you have to learn 20 tunes by tomorrow, learn 20 verses and 20 choruses, right? And then the arrangements, try to get those as you go along. <laughs> like, Get those before 
like worry about the arrangements last. Like at least kind of know the the form and the the verse and the chorus, and then work outward from that. But um, yeah, that's a, that's a different skill. I mean, I do a lot of that on sessions and stuff now. But the, to do those sideman gigs like that, where hey, here's 25 tunes, you got to learn them by tomorrow. I don't I don't love doing those anymore. But yeah, I mean, <laughs> I have done them a lot for sure. Yeah, well, I'll just just makes you a well-rounded player in the early days anyway it's great that you don't have to rely on those gigs <laughs> you know yeah for sure and that's like we talked about the bass player thing right that's the reality the best bass player in the world still has to do that all the time you know that's just their scene but yeah you can, you can to get away from that sometimes if you're a guitar player or if you have enough demand in other areas you know which i've been lucky yeah, the bass player's a tough one, man. That's there's there's a, a few really good ones here in town, and uh, if I get like a last minute gig, like I got an offer last night, and I'm like, oh, nah, you know, bass player number one, is he available? <laughs> I don't know. He might be booked with you know some right. some crazy gig because he's one of the best bass players in town. You know, unfortunately, there's a few to go on, but it's been a couple times where I've had to turn a gig down because I couldn't find a bass player. Yeah, well, that's the thing. Like Carter can work any time he wants for as many days as he wants and you know it's like uh it's very different like he can if he want you know if you're one of the good bass players around yeah i mean people want you and will take you anytime you you offer yourself up so it's it's very different <laughs> and i hear him turn down gigs all the time it's so funny like we'll be you know riding in a car somewhere he'll be over here just hanging out and he'll get a call and he'll go uh hello uh, nope, sorry, I can't go to Canada tomorrow. Oh, yep, we'll try again. You know, and I'm just like, what was that? And he's like, oh, that was so-and-so seeing if I wanted to go to Canada for three weeks. I'm like, are you kidding me? You know, like, just off, of, <laughs> off rip, like, one day before. It's hilarious. And, I mean, and, you know, I have some of that, too, but bass players live a different, different life. Bass players, you gotta know the tunes, man. Like, bass players screws right. up, and there, there goes the song. Yeah, the, the the person who has it the easiest always makes me laugh sometimes is like a fiddle player. If they don't know too, like, yeah, I can't tell you how many like quote unquote tasteful fiddle players I've been on a gig with where they play about two notes a night. <laughs> no, man, now I really want to dig into a little bit about the right hand technique. I mean, man, I, I, you're in the top percentile easily. And one of the things that I really love about the fact that you play fast is you don't lose any clarity. Like you're some of the, you have some of the cleanest fast picking. Oh man. Thank you. Yeah. 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 And I would love to know how you work that up because that's, again, that's, there's a lot of people out there who can play fast or there's a lot of people out there can play clean, but they can't do both. Yeah. Well, man, it's, it's kind of a, sorry, I'm getting in the car here. Just run but uh, I, uh, yeah, I mean, for me, it's kind of a game of, you have to know, like, it's about sacrifices. So if I want to play, the way that I play something at 90 is not the same way I play it at 190. Like, the vocabulary shifts. Everything simplifies. Everything gets a little more linear. Yeah, but no, like, so when I when I play at those high tempos, like, all the, the extra bull crap kind of goes away. Like, I'm not doing all the fancy stuff. It's just like, let's tighten up, get to the melody, kind of let the playing be a little more linear, a little bit more straight. Um and go from there like you know if i played my 180 190 bpm vocabulary at 100 it would sound so boring it would put you to sleep <laughs> and that's thing a lot of players don't realize they think they're speeding up their 100 beats a minute playing to a higher tempo but it's just a different it's a different vocabulary it's a different approach um so yeah like if, if i'm you know if i'm playing at 100 that stuff cannot be sped up or slowed down. That's the 100 BPM stuff. You know, and if I'm playing at 120, that stuff, that's where that vocabulary lives is in that tempo range. And I, I tend to think every, like, every 15, 20 clicks, you're going to have to dumb it down. Maybe even less than that. Where's the, when you get to a breaking point or, you know, like, for me, there's that a, a weird thing of like for, for whatever reason, 120 is like always a weird hurdle, but I can play at 130 the same thing. You know, it's like that weird. It's like singing where you have to find your falsetto and find where your voice breaks. You know, like I know yeah. I can sing this high, but when I do this here, I have to switch to a different voice. How do you how do you combat that that plateau, you know, for you 
when you get to a spot where you're like, I know I can get this faster, but I need, I got to get it here first before I ramp it up. How do you approach it? Well, yeah, I mean, one of the things is like, not every tempo is in the pocket for every song. Like maybe your red haired boy just doesn't work at 110. Maybe you've got to play it at 115 or 105, right? There's like, there's things like that where, you know, just groove issues where you're like, hey, this doesn't sit quite right. Let me bump it five clicks or let me pull it down 10 clicks or whatever. And that's all, that's its own thing. But, um, you know, to get, I don't know, to, to up the tempo, I always just, I, I don't know. I'm kind of lucky because, you know, when you learn when you're a kid or whatever, you don't, there's not all this pretense about, like, oh, how do I play faster or what should my technique be? You just play faster because that's what you're being asked to do. You know, when I was young, I remember being like, oh, this song's fast. I'll play it fast. Right. And that's all. That's the only thought I ever had about it because it doesn't, you know, you don't have all this time to think about why or how or if you can or can't or whatever. And um, so I, I don't know. I guess I, I don't have a great answer. I don't know. Does that make sense? Oh, no. Yeah. No. I mean, it makes us again, when you learn something as a kid, it's like so different because it's just like it's ingrained in you. That's just how you do things. You know, they're, that's the beauty of being a kid is <laughs> there's not a, it's not a whole lot of thought. You know what I mean? You're like, hey, let's jump off this bridge. <laughs> not a whole lot of thought. You just jump off. <laughs> right. A hundred percent. Yeah. A hundred percent. You know, as you get older, you're like, hmm, should I jump off this bridge? Yeah, man, it's funny. It's like there's so many things like that. Like I, uh, like when I was a kid, I used to skateboard a lot, and and that's still something that I can do. Like I can get on a skateboard and, and ride away until the sunset. You know, that's like easy for me. If, but learning to do that at my age now, I would probably die. You know, it's like new things like that. Like I, like I'm not gonna, you know. There's just it's just stuff like that. When you're a kid, you know, you just do. You learn these things that are that are easy and you can retain them into adulthood but there's yeah it, it it's kind of like back to the learning tunes thing when you're older it's a different game you're doing there's it's more heavy lifting involved when you're learning to flat pick when you're 40 or 50 or whatever when you're a kid it's like you soak everything up so fast it's so easy when you when you get your students are there a couple things that you notice right off the bat i mean you've you obviously taught lots of people you do the home study thing and are there some common mistakes that you see in a lot of players that maybe people listening today could pull a mirror out or recorder out and be like, okay, I just run through Turkey in the Straw and, and listen for this or or look at this? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that, you know, especially that I can tell of students, like a uh, main thing that bothers me is when they slur everything, you know, when there's like too many hammer-ons, too many pull-offs, too many, too much kind of that economy picking thing, whatever, like, you know, I like to see a student, can they articulate every single note of a melody in time and then and then make a choice if they want to slur something. But, you know, so many players rely on hammer-on, pull-off, this and that, and just slide through everything. And, you know, so that's something I watch out for. Like, a lot of, you know, anybody can get the notes and rhythms of a tune right, but the articulation is like the, that's where the kind of the rubber meets the road for me. Within one second of hearing a student play, I can tell if they've transcribed fiddle players or transcribed whatever you know it's all about the like as opposed to notes and rhythms it's always about like the the groove and the pocket of it and the energy and the, like where the beat lies and all that stuff so that's that's where i can I kind of you know i spot that first i think and then what about um like just building right hand technique again this is like a lifelong sort of thing but i, I don't know that i could ask many better people than you um, you know, kind of how you get, especially the volume that you still seem to maintain. I mean, I know you said you kind of, you dumb it down a little bit, but you know, you know, as far as like grip and, you know, and all that stuff, like how do you kind of approach it to maintain the speed that you do? Well, yeah, my first thing is like, I, you know, I try to minimize tension, right? So that's everything from posture to like not squeezing my pick too hard not using too much wrist or arm, you know, trying to keep everything kind of even and in line. And then, you know, like a lot of the advice I give to students is the best thing I ever did for my technique was to forget about the sound at first and defer to the feeling of it and the physicality of it. So like, you know, kind of striving for comfort first and then adjusting from there if it feels good it, it you know many times it will sound good and, and there you know there's there's some tension that you can't avoid like there's always going to be something 
about playing hard, playing loud, playing fast, whatever that, I mean, you can feel it's, it's a physical thing, but it should feel, it shouldn't feel painful. You know, it should feel good. It should feel like, it should feel uh, like maintainable, sustainable, whatever. You should be able to, it should feel like you could do it for a prolonged amount of time and not hurt yourself. What about advice for mandolin players? I mean, obviously you play with a bunch of them when you do. Um, what's some advice for uh, to, to be a good mandolin player in a jam or even on a gig? What's some things that you think make a very good mandolin player in your mind? Uh, if you Well, if you want to play in my band, you have to listen to a whole lot of Bill Monroe. That's for <laughs> starter. Uh, it's funny, like, I, I was in a band with this guy once. I used to bust his chops on this all the time. It kind of drove me crazy. He used to say that he thought Bill Monroe was unlistenable. And, I, you know, I always, wanted to, I always wanted to say, like, man, we can tell. <laughs> we can tell you think that, right? That's, it's, it's funny, but it's also kind of like, yeah. So for me, a great mandolin player has some reverence for Bill Monroe, obviously. And, like, you know, so many mandolin players now sound like Ingve Malmsteen or something. Like, why, you know, it's, it's become so slick and, like, linear and stuff, where the mandolin to me has – its strength lies in kind of that fiddle thing where the fiddle can be kind of rough and rowdy and it can really pour the gas on. And I think like when I think of great mandolin players that I like to listen to, give me like Mike Compton and Dave McLaughlin and, and like Chris Henry and you know, whatever guys like that, that are playing real like mandolin that sounds like mandolin. So I, that's important for me. And then also the chop. I mean, I like in the studio and like in a session or on a gig in my wedge and my ears, whatever the chop and the bass are on a hundred. <laughs> you know, everything else is is pretty much cut. That's the way I like to operate. So yeah, I mean, a lot of a lot of time, and and I like the playing to sound like mandolin. I don't know if that makes sense. Absolutely, I love when people are like, "Oh, Bill Monroe is sloppy," and I'm like, "Just just transcribe, just learn any one Bill Monroe solo and play it exactly like he does, and then yeah. and then let's talk about it." <laughs> well, it's like saying it's like saying Van Gogh is sloppy. Right. Like, not, not everything has to be like photorealistic, right? Every like things can have some like some taste and some like mystery to it and that's monroe's playing yes it doesn't sound like you know it doesn't sound like a metal guitar player playing legato that's not the point it, it's it's supposed to be it's a mood it's a you know it's a it's a full color spectrum it's a whole different thing than just some dumb licks that you know that are really clean and really whatever it's like um it's, it's so much more than that. It's like, it has so much feeling. Great Monroe style mandolin playing has so much, like, has so much balls. It has so much grit. It's awesome. I did, um, I, at IBMA two years ago, I watched Lauren Price and the Price Sisters play a couple times. And I kind of did a, like a video lesson with her. Cause I'm like, can you break down some of that slippery slidey stuff for me? Cause she does it and it's, it, it's so hard to do well and make it sound yeah. good and sh like her and Compton and Chris Henry have it down. But man, again, even with having a video lesson and a breakdown, it, that's, it is just, it's a sound. Man, they, uh, they grew up really close to me. Actually, the, the price sisters Lauren is, is amazing. She's like, uh, you know, yeah, she's great. She's another one. Ronnie McCurry is another one. Um, you know, man i mean there's so many but that's yeah that's that's the sound i like it's a it's a mood and it's a whole thing yeah definitely well dude let's let's talk real quick you i know you also got a new axe you got a new guitar just recently boy did i <laughs> <laughs> and by the way i love uh, the internet is so ridiculous dude like uh, uh, you did the video about it and you're like people ask me all these questions you know how much should i pay for it first off it's nobody's business how much anybody pays for anything. People should, they just need to stop asking that question. It's nobody's business. It is nobody's business. I'll tell you what, we should actually put this on, on your podcast because I think you have the right attitude about it. I'll, I'll tell you this. I, I paid less than half of what it's worth. So I did really good on it. I'll tell you that much. I, the guy was, the guy was a, a fan of mine. It was crazy. Like I, um, I was at the, this Brian Sutton camp thing and I was playing all these herringbones and I played a bunch of them over the years and I'm always like, oh, they're so great. But so I just asked, like, you know, I asked some of the guys there, I won't name who they had them, but I mean, you know, some of these guys. And, uh, and I just said, Hey, like, how do you guys get the money to buy these things? Like this, it's a lot of cash. <laughs> and, you know, some guys told me, you know, some of the collectors there, some of the guys, the other teachers, they're like, well, you know, a lot of us kind of have relied on the generosity of, 
people who want to sell their herringbone that are also a fan of ours. Like, right, that's the intersection you have to look for. Like, people who have an instrument they want to part with and they want to get it in the hands of a player. And then I remember during this conversation that at a festival once, there was a guy there who liked my playing and stuff who showed me his herringbone. And he said to me, if you ever want to buy it, let me know. And I remembered that conversation. I was like, I'm going to call that guy. And so I kind of hatched this plan. I'm going to sell a couple guitars. I'm going to get a hold of this guy, see if he wants to make a deal. And he did. He said, people have been trying to buy this guitar for years. And then I've, I've said no. He's like, but I think you're the right guy for it. And I love your plan. And and I, I got every dollar that I could possibly find and, and drove to Cleveland and bought it. And it was like, it was crazy. His kids were there and his wife was there. It was like an emotional thing. It was like, you know, this one of this guy's, you know, kind of, to me, it seemed like one of his only things of like, you know, real value that he had hung on to for a long time. You know, like it was, I think he bought it when he was kind of younger and like it just, you know, something he had for a long time and worked hard to get. And so it was kind of a, it's kind of an emotional thing, you know, it was really cool. And, and to like have him kind of bestow it on me for really pennies on the dollar is really incredible. And, and like, I don't, I don't know how I could have pulled it off otherwise. And it was still so much money. You know, even you say a good price on a 43 herringbone, that's, it's like saying a, it's like a, oh we got a good price on our house like yes but it's a it's still a lot of freaking money so you're talking to a guy yeah. who who's you know the top instrument in my world is a lore you know a good price on a lore is a lot of money <laughs> you know what i mean right and and like they're the herringbones are kind of in that same range now it's insane it's completely insane yeah well i can tell you i've never asked one person what they paid for their lore again it's a personal thing man like you said like you're going to this guy's house his family's there this bestowing this thing well what a what a first thing so wow would you pay for that it's, it doesn't matter it's none of your business it's blows my mind right. dude it's super weird i mean and I've, I've heard like you know i mean a lot of those lures and stuff and, and the herringbones are like in that you know they hover in that six figure and up range especially if you're gonna like if, if you're gonna go buy one at gruen or carter vintage or something you know bring up pile of money yeah yeah a, a bank loan officer <laughs> it's crazy yeah i mean it was like even getting the money out to buy the herringbone is like hilarious because i had to like i hit my withdrawal limit like days in a row and i had to <laughs> yeah. do the same to my wife's account i was sending money to carter i sent money to my mom i sent money to everybody like hey go to the bank and get this out for me like i don't even know how to get this money <laughs> <Yeah>. it's crazy <laughs> oh man it's so great well congratulations Thanks, man. I love when a good instrument gets in a good player's hands. It's so cool. And that thing is amazing. And it like, I mean, I have had a lot of great old guitars before that, but this thing is a whole different, I mean, it's, it's nuts. It's bonkers. Does it, no, is it like a mandolin? Does it, did the guy play it a lot? Was it kind of sleepy when you got it or was it pretty? It was not sleepy when I got, I mean, it was sleepy for like five minutes when I went to his house. He's like, just keep playing it. It'll open up. And man, it was, it did. He, um, the story on it's kind of cool. I haven't, I haven't told this anywhere, but he, um, he bought it in Michigan, like in the eighties or nineties, I think. And it was in someone's basement and it was full of mold. He said it was green and hairy inside. It was like all, you know, where it just hadn't been played. You know, it's been left sitting. And someone had dug out the sound hole to look like Tony Rice. You know, it had the big sound hole and it had a black plastic pick guard on it. So he took it to Dave Musselwhite, who was like, he was like the head of Martin Repair or whatever back in the days, like a, you know, legendary Martin Repair luthier. And uh, Muscle White says, uh, oh, no, no big deal. I have a 43 herringbone I'm using for parts. And he routed out the rosette and he and he took off the pit guard from another guitar and put it in my guitar. So there's like a, a little strip of that rosette where it used to be dug out to look like Tony Rice has been glued back in from another herringbone of the same year. Oh, no kidding. And you can never tell. And, and like when I talked to Musselwhite about it, he's like, you know, he said, basically, that guy could have never even mentioned that. Like, there's no way you'd ever even know. But uh, it was, uh, yeah, so it's had, like, that's basically all the work it had done to it. So, it, you know, had that little thing of the rosette glued in and the pit guard replaced. And, you know, the rest is pretty much straight. It's really, really killer. It's pretty clean. And great. Sounds great. Well, I got two more questions for you. I know you're getting ready to go on a well, a well-deserved vacation here. So, 
Um, yeah, allegedly. <laughs> the, the first question is, um, so what is something, if you only had 10 minutes to recommend to somebody to work on something, what would you recommend them working on? Oh, man. Yeah, like just learn a, learn a tune or learn a section of a tune. Like you, like use your, you know, if you learn a, you learn one measure of a tune only in 10 minutes, then do it, you know, do it 32 days in a row and and learn a tune. Like that's, that's the thing. Learn, learn the tunes. And, and, you know, and the other thing, if you only have 10 minutes, you know, learn, learn a, you know, if if you're not going to learn a tune, like learn some chords to a tune or learn a tag or learn a practice a tune you already know with the metronome or, you know, stuff like that. So some maintenance, but but mostly new stuff. Yeah. And do you have a favorite beer? Oh boy. I, so there's this place in Athens, Ohio, not too far from us called Jackie O's where I went to college. They have this beer there called the Raz wheat that, that I'm a forever fan of. That's, (laughs) that's probably gotta be my favorite. Well, Jake, man, I know you're super busy and I really appreciate you taking the time to do this podcast. And, uh, I love your playing dude. And, and you're just a, and I can say this because I've met you, you're just a super nice guy, man. You and your brother both are just, you know, just super cool people as well as talented. And I, that's that's great. Well, man, thanks so much. Yeah, it's great to, it's great to talk to you. And, and hopefully we'll get to hang again soon. So what's the best place for people to find you, Jake? Just go to my Instagram. It's the Jake Eddie. Awesome. It's got all the good stuff on there. Yeah, but good stuff. That's that's putting it mildly. But I, I would I would venture to say some great stuff on there. <laughs> oh, man. Thank you. Yeah. Appreciate you. All right. Thanks again for tuning in. What a great talk with Jake. Uh, just inspiring. Great attitude. Um, welcome to Stringjoy. Thank you so much for uh, joining up. Go to their website right now and buy some of those brand new mandolin strings and get 10% off mandolin beer, all one word, at checkout. Speaking of checkout, let's check out a little bit of uh, Jake Eddy playing some jazz stuff with his brother Carter on bass. Cheers, everybody. Thank you.